Hey everyone, this is Chad. Thanks for taking time to listen to my latest sermon. I want to give you a quick update before the sermon plays. At Creekside, we just had our annual business meeting. This is a meeting where we talk about budget, share vision, and celebrate the work of God in the last year. And one of the things we celebrated this year is that our sermon podcast listens went from somewhere around 2,000 to over 15,500. I want to publicly just say thanks to God for that. And I want to say thank you for listening. We put these sermons online for you, and it's good to know that you're listening, and I hope that you are being impacted. We would love for this upward trend of sermon podcast listens to continue, and you can help with that in four ways. First, keep listening. And second, if you listen to this on a podcast host, please subscribe. Also, if you would leave us a rating or review, that would help our sermons be heard by more people. And finally, if you find any of these sermons really valuable and think that somebody else might benefit from them, please share them. We would really appreciate you doing those things. One last thing, as always, if you find this sermon particularly helpful, we would love to know about it. If you do, please email us at respond at creekside.me. Again, thanks for listening, everyone. I hope that this sermon will help you learn and live more fully for Jesus. I just want to start by apologizing to my dad because the story I'm about to tell you will probably still make him angry. Uh, when I was a freshman in high school, my, my teacher, uh, Bob Jones, uh, he, uh, his whole kind of curriculum, his whole grading system was based on four major projects. So you had the whole year, you had four major projects. And uh, it was a history class. And you could do them pretty much on whatever you wanted as long as they were kind of within the, the scope of what we were talking about during, you know, that quarter or whatever. And I don't know how I got this idea at all. It was a terrible idea. Now, uh, keep in mind that when I was a freshman in high school, the internet like was, you know, like here, but it wasn't really here, you know? I mean, like there was this thing called the internet and we could... I don't know what we did with it, but you couldn't do much with it, right? Like it was dial up and it was going to take you two hours to get online in the first place. And then there was like five websites. So my idea for one, of the, I did a great project on baseball. It was really cool. But, the, but then this other one that I did that really stands out is that I decided to do a medieval times cookbook. Like I don't even know where you get that information. I'm not I, so... So I decided to do that. We have about a whole quarter to, to make that happen, right? You got about a quarter of the year. And, and I just remembered that I needed to do it at about 10 o'clock at night before it was due the next morning. And so, and now if you knew me, even in the early days of ministry, I used to be quite the procrastinator in general. I'm not anymore. I don't have time for that. But uh, I had never procrastinated like this I honestly don't know how it happened, but my dad and my stepmom, we stayed up from about 10 o'clock at night till about 6 in the morning. We were down at Xerox having it printed because I don't think we had printers even, you know, like that wasn't a normal thing to have. And that's, we're down at Xerox at like 5.30 in the morning having this thing printed. It was awful. And 
my dad was mad at me and I got a lecture, a lecture that I had probably had a hundred times before because my dad's not a procrastinator and when a non-procrastinator raises a procrastinator, the non-procrastinator gives a lot of lectures. If I was doing it, I would have had it done six weeks ago. Why are you waiting? I've heard that speech a lot of times. It's finally sunk in, Dad. Um, but, but really, I tell you that story because my decisions, bad decisions, to not get the thing done, to not think about it, to put it on the back burner, had pretty bad consequences. And we know, this is something that's just common for all of us, when we do things that are, are poor or bad, when we make bad choices, bad decisions, there are consequences for our actions. And a lot of times, unlike the Medieval Times cookbook, which by the way, I don't know where it is. I think it might have been a publishable document because nobody's made that, right? Like I was the first person ever to do a Medieval Times cookbook. Anyway, don't know where it is. Uh, but a lot of times it doesn't work out the way that it did for me, right? Like we, we don't get things done. In fact, we completely mess up things in our lives. And while school is an area where we can see that pretty clearly, uh, more to the heart of what I want to talk about this morning, what I think uh, the book of Joel speaks to, is that in our lives, we all know this, you know this, this isn't just like a Christian thing, when we make bad decisions, when we make negative choices, oftentimes there are consequences, and sometimes those consequences are pretty major. Now when I think about this, I, I just want to I think that we, we only picture like just lives that are totally messed up by, you know, drugs and alcohol or whatever. Like that's immediately where we jump to. But this morning what I want you to think about more is not just, you know, if I choose to do drugs, then I might end up in prison someday. You know, like that's pretty grand and, and none of you are in prison currently and so that's not your situation. But, but what I want you to think about is this. A lot of times when we make poor choices, not just poor choices, when we make bad choices, when we decide to do things that we know are wrong, it can destroy, can lead to tragedy in certain areas of our lives. We may still have pretty decent lives. A lot of things may be going okay for us from the outside. People may be looking at us and going, oh yeah, they have things put together. Things are, are pretty good for them. Things are going pretty well in their lives. I mean, they have, it, they have it together. Things are good for them. But there are oftentimes areas of our lives that our decisions, our sins, our wrong, bad choices uh, lead to absolute tragedy, destruction, devastation. I mean, uh, for some people, it's like their choices in, in the workplace. And you make enough bad choices in a job, and, and eventually you'll get fired. Or if you're on top of the business, you like own a business, eventually you'll be found out, and things are going to go downhill. And, you know, if there's corruption in the workforce or people are doing stupid things, eventually it's going to hurt. And, and, and it could leave, I mean, uh, it could leave, I think of Enron, that's like the big one, like it could lead to a, a massive tragedy that, that hurts a lot of people. In, in your families, if you make bad decisions and, and you keep making bad decisions, then eventually those bad decisions are going to lead to, to some level of, of 
destruction, of destroying a family uh, or destroying a relationship within a family or ruining your relationship with your family. I've had people in my family who have made enough bad decisions that, that they're kind of, they've severed themselves from the family. And, and so there's, there's destruction that comes in those ways. And, and so what I, what I think that, that we kind of know even if we like to compartmentalize and say, well, my life's pretty good overall. If we make bad decisions long enough, even if it's just in one area of our lives, then it can lead to some, some pretty big tragedy, some destruction. Uh, some areas of our lives just being broken and hurt and uh, even dead, you know. And, and the book of Joel is going to speak to that and I want to just kind of say, uh, just kind of, that this book, I think, speaks to us on, on three different levels, and the first one is individually, right, because of the things I just said. Like, I think that all of us probably have areas of our lives that we, by our bad, poor decisions, decisions that we knew were wrong, uh, we have areas that have that have been hurt and, and we look at them and we go, this isn't what it was supposed to be. This isn't what I dreamt of when I was a, a kid and I just, I wanted my family to be this way and it's not or I wanted my job to be this way and it's not or, you know, I wanted this relationship to be this way and it's not and I just thought it would be different but I made those decisions and I, it just seems like I'll, I'll, never, I'll never fix them. And, and so part of this is just individual and I think the book will speak to you as a person and, and say, look, here's, here's what you need to do. Here's where the hope comes from despite tragedy. But I think part of it is, is important for the church as a whole and, and I don't know how much influence we, we really have on the church as a whole but I, I've come out of this series where I talked about how how. I look at the church in America and, and it's not what it's supposed to be and, and really I look around at how the, the American church is shrinking as a whole, how very few churches in America are actually growing above the rate of the population in the cities that they're in, how, how we see these pastors who fall to moral things, how how divorce rate in church is the same as divorce rate out of church and, and how we are looked upon by culture as hypocritical and, and judgmental. And, and I see all these problems and it's like, we have hurt, we have destroyed in some ways many parts, many aspects of what makes church good in our country and, and is there any hope, right? Like, I mean, we come out of this, this series on church and for me, you, you probably aren't thinking about it as much as me, but for me, it's like, is there any hope for the American church despite me looking around and I don't know if you're the same and thinking, this, this, is, a, this is a tragedy what I see in the American church culture. This isn't the way that God intended it to be. This is, this is hurting people. This is hurting people's lives because of, of what they're experiencing and seeing in our Christian circles. And then, and then the other level is just America. And I mean, I, I see things, and I'm not that old. I see things in our country that, that I never thought I would live to see. I think that our decisions, the things that, that we as America, as a country, have decided to embrace is morally okay. The things that, that, that we have pushed upon people in the media, you know, it's just like led to some really bad things. I mean, I never thought I would live in a time, if you would have asked me even 15 years ago, you know, maybe a little more, 20 years ago as, as a high school kid, if you would have said like, will you ever 
have to think about being shot when you go to a movie theater. I've been like, no, what, are you kidding me? Like, I'm never going to think about being shot when I go to a movie theater. But there's been times, you know, when Brent and I hit the, hit the jackpot and can afford to go to a movie. And we go into a movie and I'm like, I'm like, wait, like, how am I going to get out of here if somebody pulls a gun? You know, I mean, what is the plan here? What will we do? And I, and I, I don't know if you're like me, but it's like, the poor decisions of our, our leaders and the, and the poor decisions of, of, I think, media companies and just our poor decisions and, and embracing things that we should never have embraced. It's like, there's tragedy all around us. I and mean, we, we don't even, maybe I should say I, like when I hear of something very bad happening, like another shooting, I barely even pay attention anymore. It's like, yep, of course, obviously, and it leaves us just wondering, like, is there any hope? And, and this book called Joel that's in the Minor Prophets that we're looking at, this book of Joel is beautiful because it says there is hope. And hope hinges on, on one big thing. And, and we're going to look at what that thing is in the book of Joel. But, uh, but, but let's set it up first. The book of Joel is, is an interesting book. He's writing to the northern kingdom. Israel is split into two kingdoms because of a lot of their bad decisions. And, and so he's writing to this northern kingdom called Judah. And, and it's interesting because Joel, and, and trust me, I read in like authors who write about the book of Joel, they all have different opinions. People don't know when it's written or really even why it's written, where a lot of the minor prophets, these small books where people are giving God's perspective in the Old Testament, there's very specific situations in which the prophet is writing saying, look, Israel, you're doing this, and God thinks this. Joel leaves it, and I like this about Joel, just very open to, a, to what the bad decisions of the Israelites are. And I think that's really cool for us because the book is dateless and, and, and we don't know why he's writing and we don't know when he's writing and, and, and it, it just allows for us, I think, to put ourselves into the situation. You know, like last week when we were talking, we, we talked about the idolatry of the Israelite people and how God just still loved them anyway and they were like an unfaithful bride and they were worshiping literally little statues, you know. It's like, I could walk away from that and the study of Hosea and go, I've never worshipped a little statue before. But the book of Joel, it's like, you're making bad decisions. It's like, hmm, I have made bad decisions before. There's no way for me to rationalize my way out of that one. And so we have to pay attention. And, and here's how the book starts in, in Joel 1.1. The word of the Lord came to Joel, son of Pethuel. That's it. It's all we know about this guy named Joel. There's nothing else. He had a dad named Pethuel. That's his, that's his whole background. That's his whole history. And, and he writes this incredible book that I think speaks directly into our culture today. And, and here's how really it starts in the, in the meat of it in verses two through four. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let the children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young lo locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. 
Joseph says, here's the situation. There is a horrible tragedy in our land. It's a locust plague. I mean, literally, there's no, this isn't figurative. This isn't describing an army. This is, this is a literal locust plague. Locusts, big old bugs have come in and they have, they have attacked our crops. And he puts it in this poetic form. He says like what the great locust left and the small locust got and what the small locust missed, the other locust got. Basically to say like our crops have been utterly destroyed. There is a, that balloon's distracting. I saw you all looking up. There has been a tragedy in our culture because these bugs have come in and ate our crops, our food sources. And, and, and this tragedy is, is almost complete. I mean, I mean, it almost destroys their entire food source. In Joel 1.7, it says, it has laid waste my vines and ruined my figs. It has stripped off the bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches wide. In Joel 1.10, the fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the olive oil fails. In Joel 11, 1, 11, and 12, the harvest of the field is destroyed, the vine is dried up, and the fig tree is withered, the pomegranate, the palm, and the apple tree, all the fields, all the trees of the field are dried up. The message that, that God wants these people to think about is, hey, you people, because of your decisions, have an awful tragedy. Your crops, your food source has been almost completely destroyed. And in 112, he uses this, this language, this word picture that, that I think is, is really powerful. In Joel 112, it says, Surely the people's joy is withered away. He says, These bugs have come in, these insects, these locusts have come in, and they've destroyed our crops because of our decisions. And what it is left is that our joy is withered away. This is a withered plant. It's been sitting outside of our house for a long time. Bryn always thinks she wants plants and then they sit outside until I throw them away. Um, please, if you have like an extra plant laying around and you're like, hey, does anybody want this? And Bryn says, yeah, I'll, I'll water it. Don't give it to her because she won't water it. Um, it will die. Um, this was a, th uh, some kind of, this was a petunia at one point and and I think that, that all of us, as I said before, have areas of our lives where by our decisions, what used to be joyful, what used to be beautiful, what used to be vibrant and healthy and good, what we dreamt would one day be flowering, has now withered away. I think that, that most of us have areas of our lives that looks a lot like this petunia or the crops and, and we go, wow, I just, I thought my marriage, I thought my marriage would be, would be a, a thing that brought joy, that brought happiness, that was good, that was healthy, that, uh, that would be a beautiful thing for others to look at. I mean, if I could go back, you know, 15 years and, and when, we, when we said our vows, I believed with my whole heart that, that it would just be this beautiful thing that grew and grew and grew. And now the joy of it is just withered away. 
I think that some of us, I mean, we just think about just what we've accomplished in our lives and, and, and there's dreams, right? And you have these dreams and you graduated from high school and they gave the speech and then you graduated from college and there was a speech and, and you just, some of you just don't like your jobs because you picked the wrong job. But some of you have made bad decisions and you have made choices that were against what God wanted for you and now you're, you're doing something and you know that it's not what you were supposed to do and you're like, I thought that what I did with my life, my job, that degree I got, I thought that it would produce just incredible joy. And for some of you, it's, it's, it's bigger, it's, it's more all-encompassing. And, and you can think back about when you, when you gave your life to Jesus and when you became a, a Christian and you're like, man, I thought when I got on my knees and I said that prayer and I said, Jesus, I want you to come into my life and I'll live my life for you, that, that man, I thought that would grow and it would be vibrant and it would be healthy and it would be good. And, and I'd look and say, wow, there's fruit that's being produced. And, and now here I am, you know, 5, 10, 15, 50 years later, and I know that my sins have caused the joy that I once had and thought I would have because of my relationship with God. It's caused it to wither. And I sit here in this church this morning thinking, there's no vibrancy, there's no health. It's just not what it was supposed to be because I have chosen to make those bad decisions. And you need to pay attention to the book of Joel because, because that's what Joel is saying to the, the people in Judah, this northern kingdom, he's saying, look, look, you guys are God's people and you had all these promises and he brought you into the promised land, a land that, that was symbolic of the relationship that you were given with God and it was to be a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where there was grapes and olives aplenty but you've rejected God's ways. You've been disobedient to him. And now, as you sit here today, you look out and what once brought you such great joy has withered away because you have made decisions that were contrary to the will and nature of God. Now, I just want to stop and, and, and say something that I think we all probably know but it's important and and consequences come in two ways right I mean sometimes consequences are the natural response the natural consequence of of the things that we have done wrong I mean like if you commit robbery then you will go to jail and that will take some of your joy away right I mean sometimes the consequences are natural but there are times when God punishes, even his people, and the Bible is clear about that, and we want to shy away from that because we don't want to offend somebody. We don't want to put ourselves in a situation where it's like, hey, you lost your job? Well, you shouldn't have sinned. And I want to be clear, so clear, that if you lost your job, it doesn't mean that God is punishing you, but it might. If there's consequences, if bad things are happening, then it's really important for us to go, two questions, is this a natural consequence of the sins I am committing, of the wrong choices I am making? And or is this perhaps punishment for the things that I'm doing wrong, the sins that I am committing against God? The answer may well be no, but when tragedy strikes, even in an area of your life, a specific area of your life, it's really important to ask the question, are there things that I am doing wrong that might be leading to this problem, to my joy being withered 
away. If you're struggling in your marriage or your job or your spiritual life, you need to look and you need to go, are there things that are leading to this problem? And you may need to do that honestly because it's really easy to go, nah, probably not. You know, probably not. It's their fault and circumstances. And, you know, if I would have been born into a different family, this would be easier, whatever. I mean, people make tons of excuses. But it's important to ask yourself, is this a natural consequence or a divine consequence of sin in my life? life. And now Joel says the the first thing that that we should do here, he says, put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn and wail, and you who minister before the altar, come spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before God, for the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land of the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. He says, here's what you need to do. You need to mourn this tragedy. You need to mourn the areas of your life where the joy has withered away and then you need to call out to God. This isn't natural for us as as Americans. Our response is to say, I'll fix it. I will fix it. I will make it grow again. I will work harder. I'll remember to water. You know, I I will do my best to fix this situation. Joel doesn't say that. He says, demonstrate how sorrowful you are because your joy in this area has withered away, because you are facing tragedy in this area. Just mourn it. And then call on God. Now I just want to say that while it's not natural, I mean if you think, if there's an area of your life that's dead, you know, you look at it and you go, there, there is no hope of this coming back. I don't know how well petunias grow back, but, but I'm pretty sure this thing's staying dead, right? I mean, can we all just pretend to agree this will not come back? And so for me, like just to stick with this, illustration here I mean if this thing's dead dead like I can water it all I want and it's still not coming back and I can put the right fertilizer on it it's still not coming back and I mean the only thing that could make this thing grow flowers again is is a miracle like right and sometimes there are areas of our lives that's just not going to get fixed by us working harder and Joel sees one of those things he says look you have been You have been punished by God. These locusts are a punishment by God because you have rejected his ways. It's not going to get fixed on its own. For these people, they're just going to starve. And he says, you demonstrate how upset and broken you are that your joy is withered away and you turn to God. Then he says this interesting thing in verse 15 of chapter 1. Alas, for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. The day of the Lord is a a major theme in the book of Joel. I mean, if you just just read right through it, it's not a very big, big book, a couple of chapters. If you just read the book of Joel, you'll immediately be like, What's the day of the Lord? It's just that you just can't help it because he brings it up on a handful of occasions in just a, a small amount of chapters that he has. And uh, 
I owe a lot of what I'm about to say to the Bible Project, which is, uh, is this group that produces these videos online that explain books of the Bible. And if you haven't got on YouTube and watched any of the Bible Project's videos before, just go home today. You'll feel like you understand the Bible just so much better after watching them. And, and they have one of these videos on the day of the Lord. And I, I watched it and then listened to uh, their subsequent podcast on the issue. And it was really fascinating because if you've grown up in the church, if you uh, have some history with theology, then when you think of the day of the Lord, what, what you think of is a day in the future when Jesus is going to return, and for those who love Jesus and follow Jesus who are Christians, he's going to take them into heaven, and for those who aren't, he is going to send them into eternal punishment. And so when Joel says, for somebody that's grown up in the church like me and, and you know, has a history with, with this topic of the day of the Lord, it's like, well, well how is it near? You know, I mean, he wrote a long time ago, and that seems, that seems interesting. But, but the Bible Project does a great job of saying the day of the Lord for a Jewish writer, the people that wrote the, the Bible, is not just a day in the future. It's a reference to the days in which God deals with evil. In fact, they, they begin this, this, this video that they produced about the day of the Lord by talking about the Tower of Babel. And how that was the first time, and you should listen to it, I'm just going to summarize it. That was the first time where, where God in a mass way said, I have to deal with evil. And, and the, the Tower of Babel, if you don't know that story, the people are trying to build these towers. And it's interesting because it seems that they're trying to build these towers so that they can make themselves more God-like. And God confuses their language. It's the reason that we believe we have all these different languages in the world. He confuses these language because he doesn't like what they're doing. And, and then we see that, that there's this day that uh, is called Passover now. And it's this day where, where God sets his people free from the oppression of the Egyptians. And on that day, he does this incredible thing and, and he deals with this terrible evil in Egypt. And the people actually referred to that day as the day and as you move through the Bible, what you see is that for the writers of the Bible, when they use this language of the day of the Lord and they talk about God dealing with evil on a mass scale, they're seeing it in 3D. They're seeing this day that is coming, but they're also seeing these little days where God deals with evil in their day in the present sense and in the book of Joel it's no different than that he sees the day of the Lord as something that is past present and future somebody uh, actually one of the guys that creates the Bible project he describes it uh, he described it in this way and I thought it was really valuable and, and maybe this is too much of an education for you but I hope that you'll go home and read the Bible and this will just make more sense to you he, he described it as, as the difference between looking at Mount Hood from the West Hills and from Silverton these people are actually from the Portland area and he said when you look at Mount Hood from the West Hills you just go, there's Mount Hood, there's no buildup, there's no elevation increase, it just pops up out of, out of nowhere, it's just there. But if you go to Silverton and you look out at Mount Hood and you, you get above it, and not above Mount Hood, that would be impossible in Silverton, but you get high enough and you look out at Mount Hood, then you can actually see 
that there are these hills that gradually become this incredible peak that we can see. And he says the day of the Lord is, is like that. There's all these days throughout history where God looks down at the evil of people and says, I must deal with that. But we can never, like Mount Hood, disassociate those days from the day when Jesus will return and deal with evil in a final way for eternity. And so for Joel, he, he does this really interesting thing. He says, look, these locust plagues, they are a day of the Lord where God looked down at our country and said, there is too much bad. They have rejected me too much. I must punish. But also for Joel, he looks out at the future in Joel chapter 2 verse 1 and he says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill, let all who live in the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. He says, look, there's another day coming soon. And he describes that in, in Joel 2, 2, he says, like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. He says, here's what God's telling me. If we don't respond to the day of the Lord that is past these locusts coming, then another day of the Lord is coming. An army will come and will just terrify and destroy us. And I think that we need to pay attention to this because when we see consequences in our lives, sometimes our, our response is to go, well, I've already messed that up. Do you know people like that? Like, well, I've already, I'm facing the consequences anyway, so I might as well continue in my sin. I might as well continue to do the things I've done wrong. But for Joel, and I, I mean, I don't like to be doom and gloom guy, but for Joel, he looks at him and says, yeah, it's really bad. You basically don't have food source anymore. But I see another day coming if we don't change that is going to be far worse for us. Well, that's terrible, right? And Joel in 2.11 says the day of the Lord is extremely terrifying. Who can endure it? And then the answer is nobody can really endure it. And then in verses 12 through 14 of chapter 2, he tells us, and you just need to pay attention to this because I, th I think it can change your life. He says, here, here is the thing that hope in the midst of tragedy, hope despite tragedy, hinges on. Here's what he says, but even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, crying, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not your clothes. Return to the Lord your God. He is merciful and compassionate, patient, and always ready to forgive and to change his plans about disaster. Who knows? He may reconsider and change his plan and leave a blessing for you. Then you could give grain offerings and wine offerings to the Lord your God. Joel says, here's the deal. Like, you have no food left, and an army's coming, and the punishment is going to get worse. But here's where the hope lies. You repent, and maybe, just maybe, God will fix the problems. Maybe, just maybe, God 
will restore life and joy to the areas that you have caused to wither. Now let me just, just briefly just say, repentance is, and Joel alludes to this here, repentance is not sorrow. I think that we, we, if you've grown up in church, if you've thought about church, if you have a history with church, like I said about the day of the Lord, I mean, if, if you've ever thought about repenting at all, what you've probably thought about is, I need to be really, really sorry about this. But in the Bible, sorrow is not a big part of repentance. I don't think that God cares much about how sorry you are about things. My dad, when I was a kid, I went through this phase where, where I just felt the need to apologize about everything. I don't remember how old I was exactly, but, but I think I was, you know, finding myself or whatever. And, and I just felt the, like if I, if I just was a little bit disrespectful, I'd say sorry, you know, and he's not even thinking about me being disrespectful. And I would say sorry. And I remember this conversation in the car that was life-changing in some ways where he said, you don't ever have to be sorry to me ever. I was like, hmm, that's interesting. And I've said that to my niece, and I will say that to my kids. I literally do not care if Hazel is ever sorry about the things she does, to me at least. I mean, she could hit me as much as she wants. Sorrow, don't care, because she can hit me while she's sorry. In fact, if you've ever taught a kid that they need to say sorry, you'll find really quickly that what they do is they'll say sorry mid-swing. In fact, I think early on when Bren, not me, was teaching her to say sorry, uh, it might have been Rogan, one of the kids in my life, I remember literally them swinging and saying sorry. Just mid-swing, sorry, <laughs> you know, as they hit the other kid involved in the situation. Sorrow for God is very unimportant. Obedience is what God is looking for. Life change is what God is looking for. And in the Bible, when, when you think about repentance and when you read the word repentance, the word describes a changing in mind and heart that leads to a changing in action. Now, oftentimes that's going to be accompanied by sorrow, right? Uh, I think that God oftentimes makes us, uh, allows for us to feel terrible because when we feel terrible, we want to make a change. I think that's in fact why God punishes us because we go, wow, look at all this stuff that I've caused. Look at how my joy has been withered away. I need to change my relationship with God. And that's exactly what Joel means when he says, tear your hearts, not your garments. He's saying, you don't need these giant expressions of sorrow. You need to have a change of heart where you look and go, the way that we have lived, the, way, the decisions that we have made are wrong. And we want to go the other way way we want to be obedient we want to serve God we want to do what God wants us to do and what stands in between tragedy and hope is your decision on whether or not you are going to change your mind and your heart about the things that you are doing that have led to the destruction of of areas of your life that have led to the withering of your joy and you're going to go the other direction because too often what people want, I've noticed this, I've been around Christians a lot, and what we want is this. God, I feel guilty, now make everything better. I think God's looking down like, hmm, you feel guilty, but you're still doing it. Sorry, you know, I mean, what, and I know you've all been there, right? You've looked at God, you said, God, I'm super sorry about that. 
with no plans and no intention to change your behavior at all. And Joel looks at the people and he says, look, the day of the Lord has come, the locusts have attacked, the day of the Lord is coming and this army will attack us, but maybe, just maybe, God will let our plants grow again if you will repent of the decisions that you have made. And then in Joel 2, 19 and 20, it says, Then the Lord became concerned about his land and he had pity on his people. The Lord said to his people, I'm going to send grain, new wine, and olive oil to you. You will be satisfied with them. I will no longer make you a disgrace among the nations. I will keep the northern army far from you and I will force it into a dry and barren land. The soldiers in front will be forced into the eastern sea. The soldiers in the back will be forced into the western sea. If you have an area of your life where the joy has been withered away, the only hope for you is to look at God and repent and say, God, look, it doesn't matter if you make it all better or not. <laughs> because Joel doesn't say that. He says, look, hey, repent and hopefully God will, will make this better. But your only hope is to repent and then trust God. And for the Israelite people, it's like, hey, I, I will, I will do it. I will do it. I will, I will make everything better. I will restore your joy. And we have hope because God might restore our joy in broken marriages and broken workplaces and broken relationships and in our spiritual lives that we have messed up by our sins, in all of it, if we will return to God, there's a chance that he will restore our fortunes. I, I read this anecdote this week, and I think it's an important anecdote. And um, Somebody was saying like, man, I just... I can't get rid of all the spider webs that are growing in my house. And, and somebody else looked at him and said, well, kill the spider. And, and we have this mentality about our lives. And we say, it's withered. You know, these areas of my life are withered. And God, I want you to make them flourish. And God's saying, kill the spider, kill the sin, return to me. And then maybe I will restore your fortunes. Now, here's the cool part. Here's, this is so cool because you're like, well, I got a 50% chance here, right? I mean, I'm not ready to repent of this sin on a coin flip. Here, here's the really cool part for us. Joel 2, 28 through 32 is quoted on the day of Pentecost. That's the day the church began. It's the day when the first people became Christians that, that had not followed Jesus while he lived on earth. And, and this is what Joel 2, 28, 29, and 32 says. After this, I will pour out my spirit on everyone. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. In those days, I will pour my spirit on servants, on both men and women. Then... Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those who escape will be on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. Among the survivors will be those whom the Lord calls as the Lord has promised. The great news for us as Christians is that what God says to us 
is that if you will repent, if you will give your life to Jesus, if you become a Christian, even if your joy on this earth is completely withered away, and even if God says, no, that punishment will last and I will not restore your fortunes, I will not make those plants grow again, even if God says no to that, if you will repent and you will live your life for Jesus, then there's this promise of an eternity where our joy will be made absolutely complete. You see, Joel says there was a day of the Lord, there will be a day of the Lord, and then eventually there will be another day of the Lord, and on that day, God will deal with evil in a final way. But if you have repented and given your life to Jesus, then your joy will be perfect and your joy will be forever. In Joel 3.18, it says, On that day, new wine will cover the mountains, milk will flow on the hills, water will flow in all the brooks of Judah, a spring will flow from the Lord's temple. And in Revelation 22, 1 through 3, talking about the end after Jesus has returned and Jesus has eternally punished some, it's talking about the situation for those of us who have given our lives to Jesus, who have said, Jesus, I believe that you came to die for the sins of the world and I believe that you rose again this is the situation for us in eternity the angel showed me a river filled with the water of life as clear as crystal it was flowing from the throne of God and the lamb between the street of the city and the river there was the tree of life visible from both sides it produced all kinds of fruits each month had its own fruit the leaves of the tree will heal the nations there will no longer be any curse from withered to a tree that produces different fruits every single month. This is what Jesus has offered to us. And whether it be these areas of your lives that you have messed up, or whether it be your future, your eternity, it all hinges on whether or not you will repent and live your life again or for the first time for Jesus. What I want you to hear today is, first of all, if you're not a Christian, man, you're hopeless. You're hopeless. Because even, even if you have a life that is flourishing, I mean, when you die, it's, it's over and it's going to, it's just the day the Lord will come upon you like a thief in the night. And, and, it, and while you may spend your life with just, you know, your life blossoming, your eternity will be withered away. And what stands between that and hope is you saying, Jesus, I repent of my sins. I give my life to you. I accept your gift of salvation that you offered when you died on the cross. And I hope you'll do it. I mean, I hope you'll do it. Because I want you to have eternal hope. And then, and then for you who are Christians, I know, I know there are people here with me this morning that you just have areas, you know what the area is that is messed up and, and you've, you've done it, you've done it. And, and, and when you're being honest, you can't look at other people and say it's their fault, you have messed it up. And this book says to you, repent and trust God. And you may never see the fruit in this life, but you might, but you may never see the fruit in this life, but when you get to heaven, it'll all be better. And no matter what you have caused to wither, no matter what you have killed off, you will have a blossoming, blooming life. A joy that will never end for eternity. 
I stole this from somewhere. They'll have to forgive me. Without repentance, there is no revival. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness. Without repentance, there is no freedom. Without repentance, there is no blessing. And so I say, if you are facing a tragedy, repent of sin and have hope despite that tragedy. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, I pray that, that all of us, God, would be people who have lives of repentance and, and not sorrow, God, because I think your kindness, Lord, as you say in the New Testament, lead, leads us to repentance. And oftentimes, God, your kindness causes sorrow that leads to repentance. That's been so true in my life. I have shed tears, God, knowing that I have messed up and that I have ruined things. And it's brought me to repentance. But God, I pray not that, that, that we would be people who are always sorry about what we've done. But we would be people, God, that when we do things that are contrary to who you are and, and what you want from us, God, we would be people of repentance, people who immediately, I hope, have a change of mind and heart and, and it changes how we live our lives. Lord, for, for people here this morning and people who will listen online that are not Christians, that are accepting their sin, that, that, that have embraced sin, that don't care about their sins, I pray that even now, Lord, you would, in your kindness, lead them to repentance and they would feel incredible guilt, God. They would look at the areas that they have destroyed and they would know that there's no hope apart from you and I pray, God, that in the midst of that sorrow that your kindness would lead them to repentance and for those of us who are Christians, God, who have areas where our joy is withered away, I pray, Lord, that you would turn our hearts and our minds towards you and we would begin to live our lives for you, God. And I ask, God, that while you don't promise to fix every area of our, of our, li our, li our lives anyway, I pray for the broken marriages and the broken financial situations, God, and the, and the addictions that people have and, and, God, the hurts that people have brought onto themselves. I pray, God, that your springs of mercy would come forth and you would produce fruit, God, where there had only been death, where there has only been death. Lord Jesus, I pray that as people here repent, that while you don't have an obligation to fix, I pray that you would, that you'd bring healing, that you bring life, that you bring good. Lord, let us demonstrate our sorrow and then let us repent out of that sorrow, Lord Jesus. I pray these things in your holy name. Amen.